Over the last few weeks, if you've been in our meetings, you will know that during our Lent season, we've been considering the Sermon on the Mount as our text. And we've tried to discover what it is to walk with the King. We've looked at the Kingdom of God, the Kingdom of God that God wanted us to be part of, the Kingdom that Jesus came to tell us about, the Kingdom that Jesus came to show us by his very person. And let's not forget, who was this sermon delivered to? Who was on that mountainside? Well, that sermon was delivered to three distinct groups of people. There was the disciples, that little group of followers, the 12 that were around Jesus, who he was trying to nurture and mentor in the way of following him. So they were there. But there was also a much wider group of people, the curious onlookers, who were just mesmerized, who were just dead interested to know what on earth was going on. And then there was this other group, the religious teachers. You remember we talked about them a few weeks ago when we looked at this whole idea of legalism. Well, they were most certainly there. And they were hanging on to his every word as well, not because they wanted to learn from him, but they were very concerned as to what he was actually saying. This morning we come to the very closing part of the sermon. Over the three chapters we followed it through and now we get to the, the point. What's Jesus already said to them in the, preliminary, in the preceding chapters? Well, Jesus has told his audience that we enter God's kingdom by God's grace. This amazing grace that the band just played and reminded us about. He's told them in this sermon that citizens of the kingdom of God are characterized by their inner righteousness. Not just conformity to external rules, much to the annoyance of this little band of critics. Jesus has told his audience about the values and the standards of the kingdom. And he's told them that they should invest in that kind of treasure. To treat each other well, that's what he said to them. And now as he draws his teaching to a close, comes the choices. And actually as he goes through these three different scenarios, they're not multiple choices. They're not multiple choices, they're either or. And the first, cha- the first choice is to do with pathways there in chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. He presents two options. One is a wide pathway with ample room on that pathway to accommodate everything. The other one is a much restricted, more restrictive pathway. It's harder to navigate. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. I was trying to think in my life of... Times when narrow gates have been a part of it. And actually, I came to thinking that most often when I've had to navigate a narrow gate, it's been at a sports stadium. Looks something like this. You queue up in your little line, you have your money in your hand or your ticket, and there at the turnstile, you present your payment And then you try and battle through this rickety piece of iron to get through to the other side. I've got to tell you, I've had many a fight with one of those in my time. 
when I was younger, I could never push them. They were always so old that they were jolly hard work. What made it worse, when I was a boy, I don't know whether you remember rightly and whether this was the same at the villa and St. Andrews and Port Vale and wherever, the Hawthorns, can't miss one out. Where else? Anywhere else, okay? What made it worse when I was a boy? Actually, adults had to go through a different time style to children, and they were miles apart. We would approach Boothbury Park in Hull, and the adults' turnstiles were over there, and they paid so much, the children's were over there. And my dad would have to say, I'll see you on the other side. Well, I was lucky if I ever got there. I think the worst turnstiles in life are those ones where the bars rotate forward. You know the ones? I've nearly done myself many an injury on one of those kind of things, I can assure you. And then there were the ones that were literally gates from top to bottom. And when you were in those, you were certainly on your own. Turnstiles existed and still do exist. Why? To make sure we don't fiddle our way in. It's all they exist for. They exist to make sure that you don't fiddle your way in. There's no running behind somebody in them. You're on your own. And actually, the image we're given in Matthew 7 of this narrow way, I think, is very much like a turnstile. Why does Jesus call it narrow? It's narrow because it's exclusive. It's restrictive. You see, to be able to approach God, to receive his gift of salvation, to enter into relationship with God, we must look to Jesus alone. There are no other ways. Jesus is the gateway into fellowship with God. John, when he wrote his gospel, recorded some similar words to this in Matthew. And he says these words that Jesus spoke. I am the gates. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So Jesus actually describes himself there as the gate. And what he was saying is, We must trust in Jesus' death on the cross. We must trust in his resurrection as the atonement for our wrongdoing and the assurance of a beautiful union with God. There is no other way. When Paul was talking to the Sanhedrin there in Acts chapter 4, he said these words, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter was saying, there is only one way to approach God. There aren't many. There's just one. Paul was exactly the same when he wrote to the church at Rome. What did he write? He wrote this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteousness comes through faith in Jesus There's no multiple choice options to get to union with God. Um, I was at the prayer breakfast here in Birmingham on Tuesday morning, and I sat next to an Anglican minister. And he was an Anglican minister from just on the other side of the M42, out towards Coventry. And he said to me in in the course of our discussion over breakfast, he says, do you have any problem with doctrine in your church? I said, what do you mean? 
He said, well, I have a real problem in the area where I'm a minister that people don't accept that Jesus is the only way. They struggle to believe that lots of the good people who make up the many villages that I serve are not going to go to heaven. He thinks that just, he said, just because they're, they're good people, people in my congregation believe they're all going to go to heaven. And that's not true, is it? I said, all oh, right, I understand what you're saying. But what he was saying was, he was struggling with a congregation that was failing to accept that Jesus was the only way that we could approach God. That people believed there were other ways of finding favor. You see, the narrow way is exclusive. It's restrictive. And I've got to say to you as well, it's personal. You know, when, you, when I remember going through those turnstiles at sports stadiums, what is the key factor in making them work? Well, you can only go through one at a time. You try and put three people through a turnstile. doesn't work. You go through one at a time. You can't do it as a group. It has to be an individual responsibility. And that's how we enter the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God one at a time, as through a turnstile. Why? Because we must be saved by a personal act of faith. We can't do it as a group. To be saved is to make a personal decision. We're not saved in clusters. We're not saved as a congregation. We're saved individually. Remember, we talked about those three groups of people that would have been listening to that sermon. This point that Jesus is making wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been lost on those religious teachers. They would have been picking up on this straight away. The message of exclusive pathway to God would not have been lost on them. I read this comment in a, an, interesting, uh, an interesting comment in a Bible commentary on this passage that I was reading that described what was going on like this. But the Lord Jesus, in this passage, narrows our choices to only two. He narrows it to religion and Christianity. Religion, in brief, can define as man's efforts to reach God, while Christianity is God reaching down to man. Religion rests upon man's work for God. Christianity on God's work on behalf of men. We are saved not by religion, but by the grace of God, God's work on our behalf. Not by anything we join, not by anything we do, but solely on God's work on our behalf. And so really, what was Jesus asking? What was his first question to this audience? I think it was this one. Where are you going? Where are you going? Narrow path, wide path. Where are you going? I think Jesus is very conscious of this little group that's antagonistic towards him. And as he moves on to the second choice, he introduces a word of warning. Having asked his audience, where are you going? what their destiny was going to be, which pathway they were going to take. He then asked them to make a choice about their travel guides. 
Now, you will know that I've talked about travel guides recently. And Jesus here, in his second question, asks this. Who's guiding you? Who is guiding you? And I think that's a very relevant issue. All around us are voices that claim to speak God's truth. And throughout history, words in the Bible have been twisted to support all kinds of thinking, all kinds of ideology. And when people use the Bible to support what they say, they're claiming the authority of God, the authority of the Bible. It's almost like they're saying to us, you need to listen to me because I've got a message from God. And because it's from God, it's right. And Jesus clearly tells his audience here that not everything that looks genuine is genuine. And that's as true today as it ever was. And I think he's calling us to have healthy skepticism. Healthy skepticism. During my 20-odd years as an army officer, I've had on odd occasion little letters that have come in the post saying, Dear Captain... The Lord has told me that this is what we have to do. And actually, I've had the difficulty of trying to discern between a genuine message and a not-so-genuine message. The difficulty is, how do you discern what's genuine and what is not? And Jesus gives us a good answer. We discern what is genuine by what it produces. We evaluate teaching by its outcomes because... True teaching will always produce the kind of righteousness that Jesus has been describing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And good teachers always support their claims by their lifestyle. They're distinguished by their moral character. Wasn't that what Jesus did? What he taught, he modeled. What Jesus taught, he modeled. And from the very outset of his sermon... The Lord made it very clear that those who were going to be citizens of the kingdom of God were going to need to be cut from a different piece of cloth than those who were without the kingdom of God. I like John Stott's reading in in one of his well-known books, Christian Counterculture. He quotes this, and he says, Instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status group. The church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals, values, standards, and lifestyle. A realistic alternative to the contemporary technocracy, which is marked by bondage, materialism, self-centeredness, and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. And such a church, joyful, obedient, loving, and free, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. Because it is when the church evidently is the church and is living a supernatural life of love by the power of the Holy Spirit that the world will believe. What the world needs is guides who produce godly living. Just like Jesus, this is what it's meant by your fruits, you shall be known. I've learned over the years that when I go shopping with the wife and she buys something for me and we get it home and I put it on and she says, that looks good on you. 
My response in the next 10 seconds depends how the rest of the day is going to go. If I immediately say, yeah, it does, doesn't it? I like this. We've got a good day ahead. If I turn around and say, oh, I'm not so sure, then it might not quite work out the same. Equally so, if we're in the shop and she's trying something on and she turns around to me and says, what do you think? How does this look? My response at that point, again, will depend what kind of day I'm going to have. This idea of something looking good on us. Wouldn't it be great if people were able to say to us all, hey, God looks good on you. God looks good on you. I.e., when people look at our life, it makes God look good. God, look, God should look good on us to other people because that's what it means by our fruits we shall be known. God looks good on you. I was interested by another comment from a, a guy called James White, who's an American theologian. And he said this, many of those outside of the Christian faith think Christians no longer represent what Jesus had in mind, that Christianity in our society is not what it was meant to be. Simply put, in the minds of many modern-day, Christianity no longer seems Christian. And much of that image has been earned. We've acted in ways, talked in ways, lived in ways that have stolen from God's reputation. Wow. It's quite a responsibility to have, isn't it, that God will look good on us. Jesus goes on to this last little bit and he, he, he uses this idea of name dropping. Have you ever been in the company of somebody who loves name dropping? Oh, aren't they irritating? I was in this place on Tuesday. Oh, and I was with. And? They can be quite irritating when they're name droppers. But actually what Jesus was saying is here, you know, there'll be people in life who will be name droppers and it'll be my name that they're dropping. There will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, I don't know you. Don't drop my name because I don't know you. People can claim to be Christian without having a relationship with Christ. You see, our relationship with God is demonstrated by what we do, not what we say, by what we are, not what we talk about. God looks good on you. Does he? So having asked where you're going, who's going to be your guide, the final choice that Jesus makes or presents comes down to foundations. And he uses that well-known story. We've all sung choruses about If we went to Sunday school, wise men building houses on rocks and things like that. But the final choice comes down to foundations. And really what Jesus says is those who build on the rock are those who hear and are changed by the truth that they hear. Whereas those who build on the sand are those who hear but are not changed by the truth that they hear. Notice that both groups hear. It's not that Jesus is saying, hey, there's some people living in ignorance. No, 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 no. Both groups actually hear. They hear the truth. 
This isn't about ignorance, it's about action. One group acts, the other doesn't. And really what Jesus is saying to the crowds is this. Folks, you've heard my words. Now, what are you going to change about your lifestyle based upon what you've heard? That's what he's saying. You've heard what I've said. I've spoken to you now. Now, what are you going to change about your lifestyle based upon what you've heard? What will you change? I read the story the other day of a carpenter who was about to retire. And he told his employer that he was going to leave. He told them it was time to come to retire and that the, building, the business of building houses was just a bit too much for him. And he wanted to live a much more leisurely life with his wife and join his grandchildren. Therefore, he was going to retire. His employer turned around to him and he said, oh, please, you've been with me all your working life. Will you do me one favor? Will you build me one last house? And he said, all right, then, that's fine. I'll build one last house. And so the carpenters started, but over time it was easy to see. His heart really wasn't in it since he'd made the decision to retire. He resorted to shoddy workmanship. He started using inferior materials in this last house. Really, it was quite an unfortunate way to end a dedicated career as a master craftsman. And when the carpenter finished his work and he gave the keys to the employer, the employer came to inspect the house. And he looked around and he said, actually, I'm not selling this. Here's the keys. It's my gift to you as your retirement present. Wow, the carpenter's face just dropped a mile. What a shame. If only he'd known he was building his own house, he might have done it a little bit better and not used the inferior materials that he did. And he'd have done it so much differently. And so it is with us, isn't it? We build our lives one day at a time. And let's be frank, some days we put less than our best into the building. And then we shock, we realize that actually we come to a point where we've got to live in the house that we've built. And if we could do it over again, we'd probably do it a little bit differently. But we can't go back because we are the carpenter. And the choices that we make today build the house that we live in tomorrow. And that is exactly what Jesus was saying. What will you change? Having heard me talk about the kingdom of God to you, what will you change? And so at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records just one simple sentence. He says, the crowds were amazed. And as I read that, I think to myself, is that all they did then? Was that all their reaction? Amazement, nothing else. Did they do something with what they'd heard? Were they actually changed? You see, Jesus wasn't asking them to be amazed. He was asking them to act upon what they'd heard and make changes to their living. And so as we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in essence, what was Jesus doing in these little choice conversations? He was calling them to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> he was calling them to come under his saving lordship. He was calling them to just acknowledge that simple statement of faith 
that most people have used down the years. He is Lord. That was all he was wanting. He'd shown them the way of the kingdom, and now he was asking them to walk with the king. Now, he's shown you the kingdom. He's shown me the kingdom. And he's asking us to do the same. Will you walk with the king? Will you acknowledge his lordship in your life and enter the kingdom of God and all its values, all its standards, all its ways? And so, where are you going? Who is guiding you? And what will you change? That's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And may this Jesus, who we declare to be Lord today, bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. And may he be gracious to you always. And may he lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace constantly. Amen.